Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. You can find out more by visiting johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific guests for today's show, including Mark Schulman. Mark is an author. He's written several books about past presidents. He's also the founder and publisher of a terrific multimedia website, HistoryCentral.com. We'll visit with Larry Reed, the uh, President Emeritus for the Foundation for Economic Education. There have been a couple of Henrys in the history of England, Henry VIII and Henry I. We'll find out their differences. And we'll also visit with uh, Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of a couple of great murder mysteries, Father the Leader and its sequel, Shake the Money Tree. It is uh, June the 14th, and on this day in 1777, during American Revolution, the Continental Congress adopted a resolution stating that the flag of the United States will be 13 alternate stripes, red and white, and that the Union will be 13 stars within a blue field, white and a blue field, representing a new constellation. The national flag, which became known as the Stars and Stripes, was based on the Grand Union flag, a banner carried by the Continental Army in 1776 that also consisted of 13 red and white stripes. According to legend, Philadelphia seamstress Betsy Ross designed the new canton for the Stars and Stripes, which consisted of a circle of 13 stars and a blue background at the request of General George Washington. Historians have been unable to conclusively prove or disprove this legend. With the entrance of a new state in the United States after independence, new Stars and Stripes were added to the represent new additions to the Union. In 1818, however, Congress enacted a law stipulating that the 13 original stripes be restored and that only stars would be added to represent new states. On June the 14th, 1877, the first Flag Day observance was held on the 100th anniversary of the adoption of the Stars and Stripes. As instructed by Congress, the U.S. flag was flown from all public buildings across the country. In the years after the first Flag Day, several states continued to observe the anniversary, and in 1949, Congress officially designated June 14th as Flag Day, a national day of observance. It's also President Donald Trump's birthday as well. Happy birthday, President Trump. Well, a Florida appellate court delivered a devastating blow to government-induced forced public masking in the state on Friday with a narrow two-to-one decision that finally took into account citizen privacy rights that have often been ignored throughout the pandemic. <clears throat> in overturning and sending back for reconsideration the decision of a circuit court in favor of uh, Alachua County's mask requirement, the First District Court of Appeal panel has cited the uh, state Supreme Court's interpretation of privacy rights so broad as to include the complete freedom of a person to control his own body. Hear, hear. What a great decision. A panel of the First District Court of Appeal in a two-to-one decision said the county uh, circuit judge, Donna, I'm going to pronounce this incorrectly, I'm sure, Donna Kime, did not properly consider the privacy rights of plaintiff Justice Green before she rejected a request for a temporary injunction against the mask requirement. Trial court simply looked at the right asserted by Green too narrowly, relying on the wrong privacy jurisprudence said the 13-page majority opinion written by Judge Adam Tannenbaum. 
and joined by Judge Robert Long. The right to be let alone by government does exist in Florida as part of a right of privacy that our Florida Supreme Court has declared to be fundamental. It's a fundamental right to be left alone. The Supreme Court has construed this fundamental right to be so broad as to complete the include the uh, complete freedom of a person to control his own or her own body. Under this construction, a person reasonably can expect not to be forced by the government to put something on his own face against his will. Florida's constitutional right to privacy then necessarily is implicated by the nature of the county's mask mandate. The majority stopped short of declaring that the uh, county requirement unconstitutional, but sent the case back to the lower court for reconsideration. Judge uh, Joseph Lewis's 15-page dissent predictably appealed to forced masking as a temporary and de minimis interference with a person's public interactions in response to a global pandemic. But Tannenbaum and Long, both appointed by the bench by Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis, carried the day. Hear, hear. What a great decision. While Lewis tried to argue that the case was moot because DeSantis' executive order may prevented local governments from requiring masks, the uh, majority pointed out that counties could always reissue orders at a future time. Because of the nature of the ver- in various uh, emergency orders that we've had and seen the county's continued commitment to public mask wearing, we are not convinced that this is the last that we'll see of this issue, Tannenbaum wrote in a footnote. Later in the opinion, however, the majority appeared to acknowledge that the circuit court might not have a case to reconsider. We remand for a future uh, new proceeding that presumes the unconstitutionality of a mask mandate in the event that there still is some mask mandate that remains to be litigated, the opinion stated. This is such great news. In other words, this uh, appellate court basically said, look, all past and future mask mandates are unconstitutional. Here, here. Great decision, in my opinion. Now, does that mean that we want to be cavalier and not wear, you know, we should all take precautions to take care of our own health and be courteous of the, of the health of others? But certainly no centralized planning government official, elected official, should mandate that we, as a group, 23 million of us here in Florida, all do the same thing. That's stupid. Uh, it's certainly unconstitutional. Well, on Sunday, uh, Arizona GOP Chairwoman Dr. Kelly Ward tweeted out an outstanding Arizona audit update. Here it is. Washington, Georgia, Virginia, Pennsylvania, Nevada, Utah, Colorado, Wisconsin, Oklahoma, uh, Alaska, Michigan, South Carolina, and Missouri all have recently visited the first full forensic audit of an American election. Thirteen states. Arizona is leading the way to the election integrity in America. She tweeted, 13 states have now toured the historic Arizona audit with hope of all 50 states doing the same, she said. Requests to review the audit have been coming in in droves, and more states are expected to tour the audit this week as to when it will be over sometime next month. Who will be next? I think it would be great if all 50 states uh, visited the audit. An election assessment conducted in Pennsylvania County months ago and quietly released into the public in recent weeks uncovered five errors, including three linked to Dominion voting systems whose election management system is used in the county, uh, Wake Technology Services, Wake TSI, a Pennsylvania-based firm, conducted the assessment in Fulton County. Workers visited the county's offices late last year and about a month later on February the 9th. The assessment was meant to review the mail-in ballots in the county, 
and explore whether conduct uh, conduct relating to absentee conduct related to absentee ballot requests, distribution receipt and counting were in line with federal and commonwealth guidelines. Wake TSI said in a 93-page report that was quietly published on the county's website that no public fanfare in May, so it didn't draw a lot of attention to it. Wake TSI personnel did not conduct a technology forensic audit of the operating system or election management system, but did review some system file dates, log files, ballot images, and other files. Uh, the, said, the report said this in the summary that it found that the election was well-run, well-conducted in a diligent and effective manner and followed the directions of Pennsylvania. No anomalies were reported during the election process, and expectations were that the assessor would not show any interferences of fraud, error, interference, or misconduct. However, Wake TSI said it found five issues of note, including that Dominion failed to meet the Commonwealth certification standards, that the election management system had Microsoft SQL server data tools installed. Now, this is common among all these uh, Dominion software. Uh, Despite the software not being part of the uh, U.S. Election Assistance Commission certified configuration, that changes were made to the management system just three weeks prior to the election. Boy, that stinks, doesn't it? It certainly means that it was installed with a purpose and it was done across the nation on two Dominion machines. Assessor said there is no valid reason for the software to be installed on the system and that the presence allows any user with access to change and uh, to change and manipulate the EMS databases without logging or recording to the database, EMS, or operating system log files. They also said that Dominion failed to fill out a document that attests that the installed software versions conformed with certified reasons, uh, with Dominion apparently claiming f- filling out the form was optional. This is uh, Dominion voting systems disputed the uh, reporting findings related to it. The Microsoft software is a federally certified component of Dominion's system, which meets the U.S. Election Assistance Commission voluntary voting system guidelines, a spokesperson said in an email. So uh, that's this this software is what has been used to manipulate uh, the voting outcomes in these various counties. So interesting. What's going to come to all this? I mean, the uh, attorney general he stepped up. He basically saying, you know, we're going to look on into all this. We don't want to disrupt voter integrity, which is exactly what these forensic audits are trying to support: is to get to the to the uh, basic issues of fraud and cheating during the elections. So uh, things are starting to come together, and, and it's not happening as quickly as we'd all like, but certainly it is coming together, and it's going to lead to, so I think, some very positive outcomes. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. 
Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. And you can find out more by visiting gulfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Larry Reed. He is President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Right now we have with us Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of a great multimedia website, good for kids of all ages, including you and I. It's called HistoryCentral.com. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bob. Thank you, Mark. So just have so much to talk about, and I thought we'd start off with uh, a summary of the G7 meeting. What are your thoughts? Okay, so the G7 meeting obviously went well in terms of the optics. Uh, everybody was very happy to work with President Biden and not President Trump, who did not get along with any of the members of the G7. So the atmosphere was good. Um, China and Russia were the main topics, or one of the two main topics of discussion, obviously, um, how to confront China and um, how to deal with Russia, who's, of course, been poisoning people and taking other aggressive m measures. Um, so the G7 really talked about finding uh, a joint way of, uh, of addressing the Chinese threat. They were a little bit more problematic when it came to finding solutions, particularly finding a way to finance a um, competitor of some kind or another with China's Silk Road Initiative. And China's Silk Road Initiative is, is an attempt to create a, a series of countries going follow, almost following the route of the old Silk Road out of China but across Africa where China's been building infrastructure and making friends and inf in increasing its influence in all those countries. Uh, so in that case, it's been a little bit difficult. There was also... Um, no clear agreement yet. In term, while everyone wants to fight environmental warming, there was no clear agreement 
of when to stop burning of coal in all the G7. So that's also an issue that, that wasn't resolved. Um, but overall, um, you know, it was a positive meeting, and again, um, there was a sense of, um, of getting together to try to together to try to confront the the challenges that China presents uh, the Western world. So Kumbaya was alive and well. <laughs> so uh, that was for sure. Uh, <laughs> but but most look, there's a, there's a realization of the Chinese problem, a realization that no one country can deal with it alone, and a realization that only by working together can countries find a way. No one wants to turn China into an enemy, but no one wants to be, um, you know, beaten is not the right word. I wouldn't know what the right word would be in terms of the Chinese. We don't want the Chinese to dominate anyone's economy either. Well, and, and the infiltration into the United States economy is just, it's unfathomable. That's been happening over years. Uh, everything from the uh, these institutes that have been established in various in, universities across the nation. It's, it's really remarkable uh, what they've done to use out, outside the bounds of uh, normal warfare. I mean, they've they've infiltrated, I guess is the best word, the United States. Yeah, well, they've, been, they've been expanding their influence without a question. We do the same thing. So do a lot of other countries have all these institutes all over the world. The Chinese have been just doing it more. They've had more money. But look, let's talk uh, a half domestic issue: the passage of of the of the legislation that's creating two hundred and fifty billion dollars to um, compete with the Chinese in all sorts of critical industries. And one of those few things that have happened right now uh, that was passed bipartisan, yeah. both Republicans and Democrats uh, voted for it. And um, if it becomes law and the House passes something similar, it will. It will direct research into areas that will clearly compete with the Chinese and not allow them to uh, run away with certain areas. And, of course, maintain America's strategic production, which is very important. You know, it, it, we have a real problem and a real dilemma that we, we constantly have to face on multiple levels. You know, we all theoretically believe in capitalism, and we all believe that markets should determine. Uh, but markets determining are what resulted in the hollowing of American manufacturing capability because, guess what, it's cheaper to produce in China. And considering the fact that we have a global supply chain, it's very easy to order your Macintosh today. It's on a plane, it's produced tomorrow, and the day after it's on a plane heading to the United States, and then the day later it's delivered to you, you know, all the way from China, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that exists, and if we allow markets to operate totally free from any sort of incentives and everything else, so much of our manufacturing will continue to be done in China. Yeah. Um, and so much, even some of the R&D, and some of the intellectual property, all of these things. Well, I would suggest so we that... find uh, the right balance. Yeah, I would suggest that uh, uh, corporate tax rates and uh, there have been other influences, in, uh, tariffs and so forth. In other words, an intent to keep businesses here in the United States is, is part, of the, part of the issue. So... Uh, I, I think, pr- quite frankly, that President Trump did a great job of making uh, headway in that area. I'm concerned we're going well, back. Well, he didn't make any headway. He, made, he did make headway making it a major issue. So give him a lot of credit for that. Yeah. It had no impact on the trade part of it. Yeah. That's part of the problem. The problem, the problem is that something can't be done unilaterally, and tariffs don't work. That's you know, we we discovered that a long time ago, back in the 1920s and 30s. The tariffs do not work. Uh, we need to find other other means of of doing it because once you start with tariffs, there's nowhere to end. 
So uh, another thing uh, that uh, they were discussing is this global minimum corporate tax rate. Uh, any progress right. in that? Um, they've all agreed in theory. The question is how to implement it. Um, look, I think we discussed it last week. <coughs> One of the problems that exists, of course, is when countries compete with each other by lowering the tax rate in every different country, you end up with basically companies shopping around the lowest tax rates. And we're not talking about, in this case, you're not moving manufacturing, you're not moving anything. All you're doing is moving the legal entity to a place. Mm -hmm. And so companies have been doing this for a long time where they've had their intellectual property owned by their Irish subsidiaries, and then they pay their Irish subsidiaries a lot of money to use the, the intellectual property. Right. So all, the, property, all mm -hmm. the profit ends up in Ireland, none of the manufacturing or almost none of it, but all, the, all of the profit ends up in Ireland, and Ireland has a very low tax rate. Yeah. Uh, we see that in the United States and states, where states compete for the lowest uh, corporate taxes and the lowest taxes everywhere. And so states compete with each other, and companies move, or some companies move based on, on the tax rate. Yeah. Um, so you know, we want companies to make these decisions not based on tax rates, let's put it that way. We need to find the right balance. Um, we don't want to raise taxes per se, but we want to make sure that um, there isn't a continuous race to the bottom in order to attract corporate investing. Yeah, I don't want to uh, get get sidetracked here, but uh, I, I have very concerned about this tax because it's the unintended consequences and the motivations once the tax is implemented that really concern me, quite frankly. Uh, hey, Mark, I want to also ask you, apparently uh, the uh, there's an intent to... The G7 leaders pledged to donate a billion coronavirus vaccines to poorer nations. Uh, the WHO, the World Health Organization, wanted 11 billion. Uh, any comment on that? Well, you know, look, the World Health Organization would always want more, no question about it. Um, clearly, on one level, no one's safe until everyone's safe. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, each country is doing a different level of a job in terms of corona. I mean, here where I am in Israel and uh, there is no corona, basically. 20 to 30 cases a day, almost all of them coming at the airport. Um, but you have an, you have an adult um, vaccination rate of over 80% at this point. Uh, but you still have anti-vaxxers, and um, you still have, you know, they, they just came out with a study that there was um, amongst young men between the ages of um, 16 and 20, there has been a, a jump in the cases of micro... Um, Microditis, I think it is. It's inflation of the m muscles around the heart, um, and it's occurred in by 260 cases, which is statistically significant. Um, so no one knows what the cause of that is. I mean, after people have gotten, uh, these kids have gotten vaccinated, and no one is, most, almost all the cases have been mild, but yeah. there is that concern. Uh, look, uh, this fact, this, this virus has to be brought under control in the whole world, so the, the economies of the world can go back tourism can return to its normal self. Um, but that's a real challenge until, yeah. until you have enough vaccines. Yeah. Um, uh, so we'll I, see. I, you know, what happens is we, we, we beat it in the United States to a larger extent, not totally, we beat it in other countries, and it finds other places to run rampant because they're not vaccinated. Yeah. Let's, let's move to the NATO meeting. Well, that's taking place as we speak. And, again, that is... Um, discussion of how to reframe NATO for the current current moment. The last, um, I think it's 11 years ago, the strategic plan of NATO spoke about Russia as a possible partner and talked about a challenge in the future of China. Um, now, of course, the 
thinking of uh, Russia as a partner is certainly something that no one is thinking about at the moment. And China has clearly morphed into a, a real challenge. Again, not an enemy, but a real challenge. Also, you know, so many things new in warfare in terms of cyber warfare and the use of AI and all those things. So the decision has been made to um, reissue the, the strategic plan of NATO, uh, like I said, it was last updated 11 years ago. So that's going to take place. Um, they're speaking more and more about how to confront the Russians. It's, it almost sounds Cold Warish, mm-hmm. um, but that's where we stand at the moment. So NATO seems to have come back into a certain level of relevance today. So what is your take on the meeting between Putin and uh, Biden? Well, first of all, it's hard to know until the meeting actually takes place. <clears throat> Meetings are always good. Um, I assume there are areas where the United States and Russia can agree, and those should be fully explored. Um, clearly, the United States um, can, cannot accept the level of hackers that have been working from Russia without any consequences, hacking into American systems, and uh, whether it was the... Um, energy oil pipeline or whether it's in hospitals, all these places, um, they need to find a way of, of stopping that. And Again, it's hard to know what's going to take place in that meeting. Uh, hopefully Biden will will come down on the side of strength against the Russians, uh, against Putin. Look, Putin is running a um, dictatorship. There's no other way of describing it. Right. Um, so his popularity has, has um, really tanked. He's not. A, he was once quite popular in the Russia. Today, he's not at all popular. Yeah. So we'll have to see where that goes. You know, I I read a headline. I should have looked further into into the content, uh, but uh, something to the effect that Putin would be willing to turn over the names of the people that are going to be committing these cyber crimes. Uh, I found the, the headline interesting. Do you, Do you know anything about that? No, I don't. I mean, I think the United States knows who they are. Would he be willing to turn them over to America? And you know. Would he be able to, willing to turn them over? That's the question. I mean, if, remember what happened last week uh, when our intelligence agencies managed to to claw back the money that was paid to the people who had uh, who had hacked into um, the Colonial Oil Pipeline. So we managed to get the money back by hacking into their accounts. Now, how did they do so, that? My understanding is that the, that this uh, cryptocurrency is is secure and it can't be hacked. Uh, how did that happen? No, nothing. No, nothing is totally secure. Yeah, there is a fallacy that things are totally secure. Nothing is totally secure against governments. In other words, you and me and the and the hackers sitting on the on the proverbial bed, they're limited in what they can do. Mm-hmm. But if you take the American government, the Russian government, the Israeli government, probably the British government, the Chinese government, probably those five governments. Cyber uh, teams, let's put it that way, whatever, however they're defined in each individual country, there's nothing that they can't do and there's no system they can't break into. Interesting. Well, so keep that in mind. I will keep it in uh, mind. That it's, it's, you know what, quite frankly, I don't know a lot about cryptocurrencies. I just paid a lot of attention to it, but that was one of the assumptions I believed, and uh, obviously that, that is faulty. It's not true. You can, you can steal someone's cryptocurrency the same way you can steal anything else. Wow, interesting. So, uh, Mark... Yeah, be good. Yeah. Mark, uh, let, let's move to what's happening in Israel. Bibi is out. Correct. As of last night, there was a vote in the parliament. It was a close vote, although everyone knew it was going to be a close vote. And the 
government of change, as they call themselves, has been voted in as the new new government. It's an interesting government. It represents a wide spectrum of Israeli politics, from a um, right-wing party of people who are uh, mostly religious but not all, to a very far left-wing but Zionist party. It includes a um, a Muslim party, Muslim, um, and it includes um, not from the Muslim party, but two other um, Arab members of Knesset who are member who are now um, who are now cabinet ministers. It's more women than any other government, mm. and um, it's certainly talk about a lot of makes a joke of the idea that Israel's an apartheid state with um, basically one Arab party as a member of the coalition and two Arab ministers at this point. Yeah. Um, so it's a very diverse group. They came together mostly to replace Netanyahu. Netanyahu was um, basically, um, no one believed him anymore because time after time he did not fulfill his promises, political promises I'm talking about now, not not uh, governmental promises. And um, he had four elections and none of them was he able to put together a majority. So his various enemies decided to put aside their disagreements with each other and form a government of almost everybody else yeah. except the ultra-Orthodox. Netanyahu has not played it um, very nice. He did not attend, um, which took place about a half an hour ago, the traditional ceremony where the outgoing and the incoming prime minister meet and toast each other that he did not participate in. Um, but he is meeting his his um, replacement right now, Naftali Bennett. It's in a strange government because the, 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 the prime minister ha- represents only six out of the 120 parliament members. But it was a key six, and somehow the realization was by making him the first prime minister and then Yair Lapid will become the second after two years, they were able to form this government. That's so um, interesting. A lot of people are very happy. So uh, are unhappy, of course. Yeah, uh, Netanyahu is still the leader of the largest party in Israel, as I understand it. It's the largest party, but it's irrelevant. He's the leader of the opposition. Opposition has almost no power in in Israel. Hmm. I remember one of the, it's a parliamentary democracy, so usually the government has the majority in the parliament. They can tend to pass whatever they wish to pass. Um, he will not probably will not go quietly into the night. But remember, he's also on trial right now for a series of issues of corruption. And so uh, this is quite a change. He's been prime minister straight for twelve years, and prior to that for another three. So he was the longest-serving prime minister in Israel's history. Um, but um, everything could, you know, comes to an end, let's put it that way. Yeah, he says that. Uh, he apparently, to, to your point, though, he's been somewhat defiant about this, and uh, he's saying, I'll be back, is basically the, uh, the message. Yeah, well, they all say they'll be back. <laughs> but the odds are very low that he'll be back, in my my opinion. Yeah. And even in the opinion of uh, some of the members of the of Likud, um, they don't really think he's likely to come back. He's going to stay head of the Likud for a while, but at some point he'll be replaced. Um, no one... How do I define this? He was he was mostly feared by other Likud members. He was never liked. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes so that, that works. As long, as long as you have the power, you're feared. But at some point, when you no longer have the power, you're no longer feared, and therefore yeah. the fact that you're not liked comes to roost. Mark, before I let you go, I, I'd like to just uh, talk uh, briefly about Iran and what's happening right now. Apparently, uh, there's a real motivation to rekindle the uh, n- nuclear agreement uh, with Iran. And uh, so what are your thoughts? Well, there is, there's been a push to try to rekindle it. 
Look, the, the Iranians have pushed very close to nuclear breakout. However, they have not reached an agreement, and there's presidential elections in Iran very soon. And there's multiple um, thoughts about that. One thought says we need to reach an agreement before the election because after the election it will be impossible. The other thought is the Iranians are holding off to reach an agreement because they want to give the new government credit for reaching the agreement. And then on top of all of that, some people say the Iranians don't want to, don't really want an agreement anyway. Mm-hmm. They're not willing to freeze their program, so it doesn't make a difference. I'm skeptical. I'm, I'm not really sure which, which of the three to believe. Um, the fact is they have not reached an agreement until now. Um, and as it gets very close to the election day, I think the elections are in like a week and a half, two weeks, um, it's unlikely they'll reach an agreement right before the election. That doesn't usually work. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't work in the United States, and I don't think it'll work even in Iran, which mm-hmm. the election is far from free. So what about the uh, the United States dropping or, or limiting or reducing sanctions against Iran right now? It, it, this doesn't seem like the, the logical time to do that. You usually make that part of the discussion. It, okay, let's understand what they did. They, they reduced sanctions on a number of individuals. It wasn't wide-scale reduction of sanctions. It wasn't removing the oil restrictions, arms restrictions, or all those sort of things. It was an attempt at um, showing some goodwill towards reaching an agreement, but it was not all that significant. It was in, it was some individual sanctions, not the overall sanctions against Iran. Interesting. Again, Mark no, Schumann. Yeah, go ahead, Mark. Please. I'm sort of neutral at this point because I'm not really sure what the right policy is. It's a diff- it's a difficult it's a difficult strategic choice. You know which way to go because on some one level you want an agreement because otherwise they may reach breakout. On the other hand, you're afraid any agreement you make they're going to violate anyway. So what's the point of making an agreement? Mm-hmm. Again, Mark, I just genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. Great website for kids of all ages, multimedia website. I hope you check it out, HistoryCentral.com. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Bob. Have a great week, everybody. You as well. Thank you. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Larry Reed. He is the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Blue Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Lyndon and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate courtyard garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean dining room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Golfshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. 
Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgrowing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000 square foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show as we're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. Coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg. Right now we have with us Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Larry, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. Always a pleasure. Larry, tell us about the Foundation for Economic Education. Okay. Uh, your listeners can learn a lot more about us by visiting our website at fee.org. Fee, and they'll see that we add daily content to the website on economics and private property and current events and history and so many other subjects. Our purpose is to educate and inspire young people of high school and college age in ideas of liberty and personal character, and we do that not only through the web website but also by way of uh, videos online and in-person events all over the country. Fee.org is the website, F-E-E.org. So, Larry, you wrote such an interesting column, How Henry VIII Debauched English Money to Feed His Lavish Lifestyle. This is a story about a couple of the Henrys. Maybe you can tell us about it. Okay. I chose, Bob, to talk about the first and the last of the Henrys who have been kings of England, uh, Henry I and the last one was Henry VIII. That's not to say there won't be future Henrys, but at the moment uh, there have been only eight of them. They're very different, uh, these two men, uh, in terms of uh, the time in which they lived. Henry I uh, was king in 1100 A.D. and for about 35 years, and then Henry VIII was king some 400 years later during the 16th century. And when it came to money... The uh, issue that I focused on in contrasting the two, uh, they couldn't have been different uh, or more different. Uh, Henry I uh, realized during his reign that the English mints, who were answerable to him, were minting uh, debauched coinage. In other words, they were taking the precious metal out of the coins and mixing in cheap junk metals and pocketing the difference. They were defrauding uh, the English people. Well, Henry I called them all in, all these uh, mentors, there were about 150, he called to a meeting uh, in the mid-1120s, and uh, uh, he found 90 of them guilty of debauching the currency and exacted a, a, a horrific punishment. They, he had the right hand of each of them cut off, he had them castrated and expelled from public service, and the message was clear. <laughs> Don't debauch or debase uh, the coinage uh, ever again. In the scheme of things, I wonder if they really cared about losing their jobs after all that. 
Yeah, that's right. That was the least of their troubles. <laughs> Unbelievable. It was pretty clear. They left a, he left a clear message, and uh, don't don't mess with the currency. And so that I would imagine that uh, I'm sure they had their problems over that 30 year plus reign, but uh, a currency that's being debased wasn't one of them. Yeah, that's right. Uh, when they when the debauchment of the currency was happening uh, before Henry uh, took action. Of course, England was suffering from price inflation. Uh, ever cheaper money was causing prices to go through the roof. But when he ended that uh, with his very severe action against the minters, uh, uh, England had price stability uh, for quite some time. But that's a very different story from Henry VIII, mm. uh, 400 years later, uh, because he had all kinds of plans to spend lots of money on palaces and warfare and you name it. He always needed a lot more money. He actually ordered the debasement of England's currency. He ordered the mints to reduce the precious metal content, uh, taking almost all of it out and replacing it with stuff like tin huh. and causing a uh, horrendous inflation in the uh, 16th century. So he's just the opposite of uh, Henry I. And how did that work out? Well, it it didn't. Now, Henry died three years after he ordered that, so he didn't get to see the full effects of the inflation that he uh, ordered. But the debasement of the currency, in fact, it's called in history the Great Debasement. It caused prices to go through the roof. It jeopardized uh, the, uh, the very integrity of the currency. And a subsequent king uh, had to end it uh, just a few years later. Uh, that was Edward VI. And then... Uh, Two years after she became queen in 1558, Queen Elizabeth I recalled all the, all the junk coinage from circulation and replaced it with uh, honest money of gold and silver. So, uh, but that was two, two monarchs after Henry VIII had yeah. debauched it. Yeah, so interesting. Whenever I hear a story like this, I always uh, wonder if there's an object lesson for current events and I uh, wonder if you'd be willing to comment, perhaps, on what, what's happening with our currency. We're having a period of inflation right now. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, there are similarities. Now, we no longer have gold and silver coins because our politicians took the precious metal out of our coins uh, back in 1964, and then uh, what little was left in it, of it uh, they took out in 1969. We've had paper money and junk coins ever since, and a fair amount of inflation. In the last uh, year and a half, we've seen the greatest expansion of money and credit uh, that we've uh, had since World War II. So we're doing the same sort of thing that Henry VIII did, it's just in different form, and uh, already you're seeing people uh, complaining very widely around the country about the price inflation they're experiencing in grocery stores and at the gas pump. So, uh, you know, when you debauch the currency, when you manufacture more of it and dump it into the economy, sooner or later prices begin to, to rise, and ultimately you pay a terrible price for it all in some kind of economic correction, recession, or even depression. Yeah, and, you know, it's so interesting that uh, I just see the uh, Fed, for example, uh, buying up, I guess they're taking up uh, a lot of paper, a lot of uh, federal paper and uh, bonds and so forth. And uh, they seem to have, uh, of course, uh, the Fed can't go broke, so they, <laughs> apparently. So, uh, I mean, what's going what's gonna to happen as a result of all this? 
Well, I think in the short run, for sure, and uh, you can't really see uh, into the future very much further than that, but in the short run, we're going to see increasing rates of price inflation across the board. That's sort of baked into the cake because of the uh, expansion of the money supply that's already taken place. The question is, well, how will the Fed respond to that? Historically, when that sort of thing gets out of control, then it uh, overcompensates in the other direction by jacking up interest rates and pushing the economy into a recession. Uh, it brings down price inflation, but it also raises things like unemployment. <laughs> yeah. So it's a, it's a terrible merry-go-round or roller coaster, you might say, that we're on, thanks to the fact that government is in charge of our money. And I don't know of a, an experience in all of history when uh, government in full charge of money uh, doesn't sooner or later begin to uh, manufacture more of it just to pay for its crazy spending. Yeah, and you know, a penny saved is a penny earned. It, uh, you know, capital tends to flow away from those that don't take care of it, and this administration just seems to want to spend, spend, spend. It's very concerning, quite frankly. It sure is. Uh, uh, the money just isn't there unless they print it uh, to to uh, cover for these um, trillion-dollar-plus spending bills that the president seems to come up with uh, every few weeks. Yeah. Larry Reed, again, the president emeritus for the Foundation for Economic Education. Hope you visit the website fee.org, F-E-E.org. you also find this column, very interesting, how Henry VIII debauched English money to feed his lavish lifestyle. Larry, I always appreciate your commentary. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg. Jim is former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. He knows a lot about what's going on in the Beltway. He's also the author of a couple of great murder mysteries, Follow the Leader and Shake the Money Tree. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me and he'll help you too. Listen to the Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on BobHarden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge.
Join Lulabee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598-3889, that's 598-3889, or send an email to bobharden at hotmail.com to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598-3889, or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. I proudly serve on the board. They do great things, including creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. Even though it's going against the tide of this current administration, you can find out more by visiting thefga.org. We have with us, as I mentioned before the break, Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. He retired from that job, and now he's writing books, and there's some great murder mysteries. Follow the Leader and its sequel, Shake the Money Tree. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, it's a pleasure, Bob. Thank you, Jim. I understand that uh, the president has, of course, a featured meeting coming up. It's going to be a meeting with Putin, but I understand he's meeting with Erdogan and, uh, from Turkey. Today. I think it'll be a pre- preview of the meeting with uh, Putin, and um I think both meetings will end in uh, failure. Uh, Erdogan is um, a NATO ally yeah. in word only. I mean, he's 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 moved uh, in the direction of uh, Russia. I mean, he's he's really a threat to the technological advances of uh, of NATO over Russia. He he, for example, he bought a missile system from Russia few years ago, an anti-aircraft missile system, which is a threat to the U.S. F-35 advanced fighter. I mean, you know, so, so that's not a friend. Um, so I, I, I don't expect much of this meeting, but I, it will be a, a window into uh, what to expect from uh, Putin, which is not much. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, this perplexes me. If you, if you look at the, the, the polls, you know, and I, I take the polls with a grain of salt like everyone else because they always seem to be wrong. But Biden's popularity is uh, up in the 50s, which is unusually high. Uh, Congress, by the, on the other hand, is uh, hated by the public. Uh, and I'm wondering, you know, what explains Biden's popularity? And the only thing I can come up with is gridlock. Um, you know, his, his administration is... Uh, you know, photo ops and carefully choreographed sound bites, but uh, his his uh, party, especially the left wing, can't accomplish anything in Congress. So I think his uh, ineptitude is uh, considered a virtue by the American public. Well, and probably uh, by markets, t- probably by markets as well. Uh, don't you think? I mean, Jim, uh, if in fact he were able to to uh, implement this uh, program, this uh, strategy that he has, uh, it would be devastating to the economy and devastating to markets, don't you think? Oh, it would be, and, and it, it, well, devastating to the psychology of markets because these programs, I mean, it's easy to, to appropriate uh, the money over a 10-year period, but to actually get the uh, 
the spending and the um, construction up and running or the destruction would, you know, term it as you will. It takes a fair amount of uh, time, mm-hmm. but, but, you know, the market would react very negatively. Um, you know, already uh, the average guy is getting hit with a tax hike in the form of higher gasoline prices. Sure. And, uh, I mean, this might be, um, we may look back fondly at $3 a gallon gas uh, because, uh, you know, it looks like because of the uh, green policies, the contemplated green policies, and just demand from the world in general, uh, that we could be paying 4 or $5 a gallon uh, in a year, a year from now. Uh, that's also bad news for the uh, Democrats. I just see uh, the Republicans taking control of Congress uh, in the elections next year. And I I, I think simply, uh, you know, Biden's administration was really only a 200-day administration, and uh, he's failed uh, miserably. He, He hasn't gotten a major piece of legislation through the Congress. I don't think he will. Well, he did get the, he got the, the stimulus program without that one bill uh, through, as I recall. Am I right about that? I think so. Yeah, he got the, well the stimulus, but but the uh, I mean I mean he has that trillion dollar infrastructure plan that he's trying to get through, and he can't you know he can't get moderates in his own party to go along with it. Uh, uh, the other thing I'm looking at, I, and I, I think. The Democrats must be reading these tea leaves. Uh, Gallup did a uh, poll about a week ago on abortion, mm-hmm. and it's at a, a record high. Forty-seven percent in the U.S. think abortion is morally acceptable. But if you drill down, um, you know, Republicans, the Republican Party is clearly the pro-life party. Mm-hmm. So if if you're pro-life, you know, you pretty much have to be with the Republicans. And 41% of the independents are also, according to this poll, pro-life, which tells me that 41% of the independents are really unregistered Republicans. Uh, and if, you, you know, if you're pro-life, this, this poll sounds uh, pretty grim, but as you, as you drill down even further, um, a majority of Americans think there should be limits on abortion, that it just yeah. shouldn't be an open door. Well, t- and, for uh, me, for me, I mean, I, I think uh, everybody has a right to to uh, have dominion over their own body. The, the uh, uh, appellate court here in Florida ruled that all mandates, mask mandates, past and future, are unconstitutional. I thought that was brilliant. So I, I mean, it, that's just out of the playbook, quite frankly, for a libertarian. Uh, on the other hand, I think. Uh, our science has improved so much with regard to uh, what's happening in the womb, and uh, we 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 are aware of heartbeats and we're aware of movements, and you know we learn so much about the the fetus. I guess my point is this: that murder is against the law, and when <laughs> we just can't allow murder. Well, yeah, I I'm optimistic because people say there you know it there should be controls, so so that the poll is, is misleading. Because a majority of Americans uh, would be in your camp, but with strict controls on on when you use this uh, radical procedure. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah. Now, personally, I'm, I'm anti-abortion. Yeah. Um, and um, let me make a uh, facetious 
economic uh, argument too, which could be applied to the pill. I mean, uh, it might be that the uh, popes of the Catholic Church were the greatest economists of our time, and we didn't realize it. Uh, when you look at the demographic trends in this country and the declining birth rate, right? Uh, it's really inimical to our future. Now, you know, we're in trouble. You know, automation is not, not a panacea. All right, you're absolutely right about that. We need to expand our population. And uh, yeah, quite frankly, I'm uh, pro-life too. I don't mean to imply that I'm for abortion in any way, but uh, I think the evidence is indicating that, quite frankly, uh, life begins at con- conception, and uh, therefore we don't want to be committing murder, uh, just to clarify my point there. Uh, yeah, yeah, I just see... Uh, I just think the legislative uh, route is doomed for failure that you really have to win the hearts and minds of, of, of the opponents and, and get them thinking deeply about what's at stake here. Absolutely. Jim, I mean, a big case coming up before the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about abortion. Yeah. So it should. Uh, we, sh- we should make it easier for women to have children. You know, that would be very pro-life. So well, I'm in favor of uh, uh, a, a liberal position, you know, uh, more funds for child care. So well, our suggest, I, ways. I su- They can raise children and have a career. I suggest a tax incentives for having a family and, and, and for increasing the size of a family. That's happening. I, is that, where is that happening? In Hungary or uh, Turkey? I've forgotten which country, but uh, I think it's a good, good plan. And uh, we need to have... Uh, I would like to see, I'd like to see us create incentives for for people to have kids. I think that's important. Yeah, it should it shouldn't be a punishment for for, for people to try to raise a uh, large family. Absolutely, uh, we should pitch in and help because uh, it's it's a it's a national resource. Absolutely, Jim McTagg again, author of Father the Leader and its sequel, Shake the Money Tree. Two great books. Uh, great reads happening right there in Washington, D.C. Jim, I always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Bob, you're fun. You get uh, you get me thinking in the morning, Monday morning at 5 o'clock in the morning. So thank you for that. <laughs> thank you as well, Jim. Well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. Tomorrow, we're going to visit with our state senator, Kathleen Pasadomo. We'll also visit with Boo Mortensen. We'll find out what's new with Boo up in the tundra there in uh, Madison, Wisconsin. Seton Motley is the founder and president of Less Government, and my wife Linda will be joining us as well. She writes, Greetings from Paradise. Just wrote one uh, last week or two, and uh, she also has commentary on what's happening here on the national stage as well. Always appreciate getting your comments on the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com. Bobharden at hotmail.com. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. Thanks so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com. Bob Harden.com.